the Wednesday episode of the Dobbin Bandits. I'm Orrin Phillips, and this is an Orrin-only episode. And it is an Orrin-only episode with an amazing, amazing guest. It is Anne Ascenti. Anne is an established writer, editor. Um, I, as I posted on Facebook, she's a game changer. Look at the work she did working with Chris Claremont on the X-Men books. Look at the writing she did for Daredevil that put the character in a whole new level. Um, check out something she wrote called The Seeds. Uh, it's out there now. Please look it up. It's absolutely fantastic. Anne is an incredible, an incredible person. She has so many great stories to tell. She's been so influential in comics. And to be able to sit and talk with her was an absolute honor. So, without further ado, Anne Descendi. So, the first question we ask everyone is, how did you first discover comics? I, I, uh... I answered an ad in the Village Voice and uh, started writing them when I was really young mm-hmm. and, um, you know, spent 10 years in the business and then left to go do more film and journalism. I had always wanted to be a journalist, which I think when you read my early stuff, Longshot was crammed with way too much and daredevil every issue was like something important you know i mean i really started in the game feeling like um insecure about just a action adventure tale for the fun of it mm-hmm. it was sort of like i thought well there has to be something some important issue like animal rights or you know i did nuclear energy you know i had it was it was the 80s yeah so you know <laughs> We were all protesting nuclear power mm-hmm. back then, you know. So, um, yeah, so that was 10 years at Marvel also as an editor. And then because I think I always had this journalistic bent and Denny O'Neill was one of my main mentors because he had put social issues in his comics and he was like, do it, go for it. And he showed me his uh green arrows and batmans i guess it was and um and then i just thought you know i gotta get this out of my system i gotta try other kinds of writing and i went off and i did journalism and i spent 10 years i had a a film magazine called scenario and i interviewed directors and then i started writing scripts and making films and teaching film but I, I always had this early first love of comics. And so when the industry got healthy again, because it wasn't that healthy in the early 80, 90s, I mm. guess, you know, right when I left, it was when a lot of the industry just kind of collapsed. And because um, of uh, Marvel going bankrupt, it's hard to believe now, right, with right. billions of dollars floating around the Marvel universe that it was everyone bankrupt. But, you know, for years, my mailbox would be filled with these chapter 11, like, you know, hundred page documents, because that was also back when people didn't send digital files. So, you know, they, they, I, they, I have like, they sent me an entire box of the Marvel bankruptcy case. I have no idea why, I guess, because I work, you know, work there. But um, and then coming back into comics with Karen Berger and Berger Books is when I felt like I finally, you know, did work that I'm really happy with. 
doing the seeds with David Aha was very personal. And so was doing Ruby Falls with um, Flavia Biondi. Mm -hmm. So I was working with two great artists, probably the greatest editor ever, you know, and Karen has the skill to bring personal stories out of people and help you, you know, I don't know. She's just so good with building in enough time to make sure. Oops, that's my alarm to get on this Zoom. <laughs> so Karen was uh, really just instrumental in saying, you know, you don't have to hang a narrative on a superhero. You should try this other stuff, you know. And, you know, I would like to do more indie comics. And um, But really the seeds, which I guess is the main point of this interview today is it right the seed yeah. um is um probably like the fav my favorite thing that and ruby falls are my two like i have a lot of affection for everything else but mm -hmm. I, I you know when i look at long shot i have so much affection for working with wheezy and chris and arthur and just like we had a blast but we were like kids and it's too dense, you know, it's like such a dense comic that it's like some kind of like arcane thing you dig out of out of a hole in the dirt somewhere. And it's it's like some map to the universe that no one can understand, you know, so, um, you know, so now I'm back at Marvel doing I just finished up a Storm series and a Captain Marvel series. So I'm back. You know, I like the ladies. What can I say? I like writing the females. Um, Storm, the Storm story came a lot out of, you know, they sent me a couple issues and said, we want you to do Punk Storm. And I was kind of like, I never, you know, because I, I was in the 80s New York when Punk was happening. And other than an outfit that was cool, like really cool, the way Paul Smith designed it, um, and the and the the idea that she had beat Callisto, and so she was, it was her right to wear the leathers, mm -hmm. and the Morlocks were always kind of misfitty punk underground, um, but the Mohawk was like kind of crazy, and you know when K Chris wrote a story like so, uh, Mark and Drew, my editors, sent me a couple issues. Even though I might have even been Wheezy's assistant back then, I hadn't read them in 30 years. So <laughs> I read a couple issues and I went, you know, this moment when Rogue enters the X-Men, they let a villain into their mix mm -hmm. and Storm becomes, puts on the leathers, but she also becomes a little bit hard because she's, you know, knifed Callisto. And Kitty is furious at, like, her best friend is... It wasn't just the haircut. It was that her best friend was cold. Because, I mean, I, I, I started thinking in the metaphor of, like, what if you were now the boss of all your close friends? Like, your close friends, they're like, what do you mean you're now the boss of me? You know, so... Storm is suddenly the boss of Wolverine, Colossus, Kitty, you know, so it rogue. And and so it felt like a moment in Chris Claremont history where there was a lot to 
you know, as they say now, unpack. Like, why did they let Rogue into their mix? You know, and then I was able to deal with some things that, you know, why did Xavier take Storm out of Africa? You know, that was like her homeland. She she could have helped her people in Kenya, you know. Um, why did they let Rogue into the mix? She's a villain, you know, and uh, which was beautiful because it was kind of like, what is the difference between a villain and a hero? You know, she was young. She got sort of groomed, if you want to say a, a nasty word. <laughs> but maybe it's true. She got a little bit groomed by Mystique and Destiny. You know, they found her and they helped her and they loved her and they raised her like a daughter. But they definitely brought her over to the dark side. So I had a lot of fun with literally just dynamics that Chris had set up. And I know those flashback comics aren't for everybody. Like you have to, you have to have a love of eighties, Chris's eighties X-Men to, you know, to buy those and want to see, but you know, we, we, I worked with uh, Sid Cotian and Geraldo Borges and we tried to come up with a, also a brand new storyline that tests her powers, but also a kind of a, Conf, you know a, a con artist kind of thing too so so we had a lot of fun and then um yeah so and captain marvel i mean was intimidating because she has the carol core she has like huge fans <laughs> kelly sudaconic is like a goddess to me kelly uh thompson did such a great job and it felt like a huge you know thousands and thousands of captain marvel fans and great captain marvel talent and you know you you try and jump in on the run on something like that and you don't you know normally in the old days they they'd keep you on a book for years right. so you'd really you know your my first five issues of daredevil were like me coming up with weird villains and i didn't really find my daredevil story until i brought johnny ramita and i brought uh typhoid marion and then it really started to sing and soar and so to do a five issue um captain marvel story while you wait for the the next writer it was a, with a bridge to give the next writer more time you know i uh I just came up with a brand new story for her and rather than doing a deep character thing, because I didn't feel authentic enough yet mm -hmm. in her shoes to do any deep character stuff, you know? So they kind of just told me um, how to play it. You know, she was about to step up as the leader of the Avengers. She's, you know, a little bit arrogant and bossy and always thinks she's right. And she and they sort of said, Oh, she's not with one guy, but she has a crush on this guy in Maine. And you know, so you kind of like get the framework of where you're supposed to fit your story. And you talked, you said the seeds was a very a personal book for you. Is your mindset or the the approach you take to the uh, a book like that as opposed to Storm or um Captain Marvel different, or do you kind of approach it the same way? I mean, it was very different. I think when you're playing with 
a a toy in a sandbox you don't own, like a Mar- the Marvel sandbox. Mm-hmm. You really owe it to do owe it to the character to do a a character. I mean, I was the editor of the X Men during those Chris stories, so I felt like you know I knew Storm well enough that I could you know, do a character story with her as the linchpin and everything spinning around her. Whereas with Captain Marvel, because she was new to me and I felt like, like what I just said, I didn't feel like I had the authority to, to make any big changes, you know, to have her, to play with her core nature too much. The seeds is the seeds is a collection of ob- obsessions. So, like I, you know, it, this was 2018, so it was five years ago, and I think I started work. We started working on it in 2017, and um, maybe even earlier. I can't remember, but um, you know, it was a big story. Was that I had friends that had beekeeper were beekeepers, and their bees were leaving. I had it was sort of the beginnings of people realizing that social media and too much tech time was bad for young people. You know, I had some friends that were having real problems with never leaving their house, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And, and I knew my own addiction, like that feeling when you've like forgotten your phone Mm -hmm. and you're like, how do I do this? How do I how do I go to the hardware store without my phone? You know, and you realize you can go to the hardware store without your phone because so what? You oh. know, you'll get a phone message when you get home like the old days. So we so I feel like those of us that were raised pre-internet, we still remember being untethered, like completely untethered. Mm-hmm. You'd go out in the morning with your knapsack and run around and do stuff all over the city. And unless you like had an extra quarter and could check the, find a phone box and check your messages at home, you really, no one really could communicate with each other. So there was a great joy in that, in, in never being responsible. Now we're all very tethered and, and everyone can find us, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and track us. so I think it came out of me being curious about the, you know, the original Luddites. Luddite became a kind of an insult for a while. A Luddite, people said Luddite when you like couldn't get up to speed in some technology. But the original term was not an insult. The original term was, um, I think his name was Jeff Luddite. I forget what his name was, but he... He realized that the looms, the auto, the 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 looms that they were creating were going to ruin, take a lot of jobs away from people who made cloth, and it was like the smashing of the machines became a big symbol. Like, why do we want a machine doing something? It takes jobs away from people, and that was a hundred years ago or whenever it was, I probably have that date wrong. When was it? I don't know. The first industrial revolution. And then of course you had great films like modern times with Charlie Chaplin, you know, trying to like move things down a conveyor belt and just completely messing up. And, you know, fast forward to today when we have 
what I consider a kind of a bait and switch that technology was always supposed to relieve us of boring things so that we could have fun. And instead it's trying to like write novels and make movies and write songs. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, (laughs) which is what the whole uh, writer's strike was just about, you know, to say that you can't as a studio generate a screenplay using you know, AI generated chat GPT eight or whatever we're up to mm-hmm. and then send it to me and tell me to polish it, but it's a, call it an original script. It's there's no such thing as an original script mm-hmm. made from AI because AI is built on everybody's scripts, you know? So. Makes sense. Now you had mentioned how much Karen Berger had helped and influenced you with this project. For you as an editor, what was your editorial style with working with writers and artists? How did you approach them? I mean, I learned everything from, because Marvel has a great system of editors and assistant editors. Mm -hmm. And back then, I I mean, I felt like it was a better place Mm -hmm. because you also were supposed to know how to make comics. So, you know, you... You 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 either wrote them, drew them, inked them, lettered, colored, whatever. You were part of the process. And I don't even know why the, there started to be these rules that after I left that they didn't want the editors making comics, which never made any sense to me because if you don't make them, you know, I mean on some level, you know, if, I mean, Karen Berger is an immense talent that never had to make a comic to know what she was doing, but, um, so there are exceptions, but what it was great for was I was assistant to Al Milgram. Al Milgram would show me, how do you go over storyboards? How do you make sure everything flows and that the eye goes the right way and that there's a, you know, just there, there's like a billion little pieces to, that go into making a perfect comic book page. Mm-hmm. And um, so he didn't sit me down and teach me. It's just artists came in with their layouts and Al would go over them and I would just like be absorbing everything like a sponge. And then with when I was assistant to Louise Simonson, Wheezy, I just watched how she dealt with Chris. And Chris is a fountain of too many ideas. And you just have to like listen and pick the good ones. And I just like, I feel like I was a sponge and I became a little bit of Denny O'Neill, a little bit of Al Milgram, a little bit of Wheezy Simonson. And mostly what I learned is that you try really hard to hire the t- most talented people you can, and then you get out of their way. Gotcha. So if, you know, when we put um, Bill Sienkiewicz on the New Mutants, you know, Chris and Bill, you just got out of their way because they were both bubbling with ideas. And, you know, and I would sit there at their lunch meetings and they'd be bubbling with ideas and for all this kind of stuff. And when you have an artist like Bill Sienkiewicz, you can say, what about, what about this guy Warlock? And he can grow and he can, you know, and it was sort of like perfect for Bill because Bill 
is a constantly changing in experimental artists who went from Neil Adams to abstract expressionism to, you know, Ralph Steadman to everything that he had influenced him. And you have to keep giving him challenges, you know, and so to give him a challenge like Warlock or Legion or Demon Bear, those were like, you know, something that he could really run with. Otherwise, you'd lose him off the book, you know? It, you made a really good point about putting the right team in place. How do you do that? How do you know what pieces fit, what personalities fit, or is it just sort of a roll of the dice each time? I mean, it just, it just, sometimes it just happens naturally because mm-hmm. um, artists and writers talk to each other and they mm-hmm. want to work together. So like, you know, David Aha and I had done a Daredevil together mm-hmm. and we really enjoyed doing it. It was this, uh, bullseye daredevil and a lot of firecrackers in a bar <laughs> you know it's like my kind of story and and then years later david just sent an email what are you doing and that's perfect because when an artist comes to you and says what's in your brain and you tell them what's in your brain and in my case i said you know you know the death of journalism aliens bees you know and <laughs> and um then david comes back with what's in his brain and if it meshes you go for it um as an editor like i had bill mantlo who was such a great professional and i he teamed up a lot with um sal Busima, and um i think he was doing like three books for me he was doing the hulk he was doing maybe Micronauts, I think Rom for a while. I mean, he he was doing a lot. And he's just he's just uh, kind of an unassailable professional. And he just knows what he's doing. You don't have to. And then Joe Duffy and Cynthia Martin took over Star Wars. And you just, again, you just get out of their way. Joe Duffy was so good at writing Star Wars that you just got out of her way. And Cynthia Martin was had this like beautiful grace and finesse to her work. So all the sword play, you know, and, and the creating of new characters was a lot of fun. So it's, you know, part of the job is being like a managing editor and making, you know, like Virginia Ramita taught everyone at Marvel how to be on time. Mm. So, you know, she taught us all if you don't stay a few steps ahead of the machine the machine it's like that modern times charlie chaplin you know if you if you go to a party one night and are hung over the next day and don't read that script then everything starts to pile up on you and you're in trouble so it's really it's really the artist staying ahead of the machine because you know if you have eight books that you're editing that's you know, that's that's like, uh, you know, eight scripts, eight letterers, eight colors, eight, you know, and then you have another level of like sometimes, you know, stories can get in trouble. A lot of writers, you know, the the arc, keeping control of the arc, mm-hmm. the third act of every comic, you know, that turning point is like all these little pieces that can suddenly you can have trouble or someone gets sick and you lose your anchor. You know, there's always like fires to put out. 
And back then it was, we still had the comics code. So we also had to send our books through the comics code and they were pretty easy to deal with. They didn't care about violence that much. They cared about nudity. You know, they were swear words. Um, until then, I guess Marvel just said, threw that off and said, forget it. No more comics code. Um, I think it, it coincided with people realizing that comics were not for kids. You know, at least not Marvel comics. You know, we only had like, I love that we, Weezy Simonson came up with Power Pack because then we had a comic for kids. And in fact, I think she's bringing Power Pack back, which is great. And now Marvel has Moon Girl, who I love, Moon Girl and the Dinosaur. You know, that's that's a great one for kids. So, you know, it is people always think of comics are for kids. But for a long time, Marvel didn't have a lot of co content for kids. It was all very uh, violent. <laughs> when did you feel as an editor and as a writer that you know confidence that i made the right decision i belong here and i'm very good at what i do i mean i think it's the thing about storytelling is that it's a lifelong learning process because mm -hmm. i mean you never get on top of it, it, it's a lifetime of study. You watch movies, you see how, you know, you read books, you read, you see how stories are built. You figure out when, what stories excite you. And it's just, it's a never ending learning curve. So, well, I think, you know, I mastered um, keeping my books on time, making sure they were good, getting them out. There's no, there's no end. It's a lifelong craft storytelling like you can you can still mess up <laughs> you know <laughs> how do you know when you're writing a book you know because we, we've spoken to different writers that it's maybe time to step away from a book or maybe time to start a new project when they, you sort of hit a wall with the character how does a writer know when it's time to maybe switch well the only time i was a long time on a book was daredevil for four and a half years or five mm -hmm. years or something and i think what happened was I was kind of moving away from comics and heading towards journalism and film. I was starting to get screenwriting work. And I I think I needed a break because, you know, I had done all these big epic stories and small stories. I'd taken them on the road and came back. And then I think did some kind of like didn't know who he was narrative, you know, and then um then I started getting him involved because my my work my style with Daredevil was always to just go out into the streets in New York where he lives, go to Hell's Kitchen and see what's going on. And there was a lot of activism at it towards the end of my run. The, the streets were just filled with a lot of activists. And I had to meet an activist and she was black. And I was getting like the feeling that you know, I wanted them to be a couple and I was getting the feeling from people above me that Marvel wasn't really ready for that or, you know, and it, it was just a feeling and, and, uh, the places I wanted to take Daredevil were maybe a little too, like, I don't know. I thought there'd be a place for him in the underground activist culture. So I never, I never really got to explore that because then I left the book. 
Mm-hmm. And it's usually a mutual agreement, you know, like the editor's like, hey, you don't have any more stories left, did you? And I'm like, yeah, maybe you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you mentioned, you know, journalism and film. Could you have seen a career where you picked one of those paths and just went all the way with it? Or did comics, journalism, film all kind of blend into each other and you needed all three to be where you were? Yeah, they all blended in and you could say, you know, maybe I have like undiagnosed ADHD or something, (laughs) but I get very restless and I'm always looking for, it's sort of like what I was saying about Bill Sienkiewicz, you know, he's always needs a challenge after, after, um, New Mutants, he did Electra, and he was able to get a little wilder. And then by the time he was at Stray Toasters, he was doing, you know, he was following his heart. Right. So I think a lot of it is just not wanting to get stuck and not wanting to be repetitive. And sometimes as a storyteller, switching forms helps mm-hmm. because comics is fantasy, 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 fantasy when it's a superhero genre and it's all you know and at some point you're like well i want to do something that doesn't have a superhero in it or i want reality you're craving reality suddenly and that's when you need journalism like i really want to write a journalistic piece so i ended up going to um uh writing some fiction films and then I ended up, uh, I don't remember which came first. Oh, going to Baluchistan and doing a film about falcon hunters wow. and then doing journalism about falcon hunting and then uh, went down to Haiti and helped start a film school in Haiti and then started making films in Haiti. And sort of all these experiences, really infantile in like <laughs> fantasy worlds all the time. You know, honestly, if you could, if you could peer into the mind of any writer comic book writer and artist and you realize that they're driving down the road thinking about how like you know hmm well if i you know if if i sucked her soul out and then i left and then what and then i put her soul in about you know and you're just like the thoughts and people people would think we're all just looney tunes but it does keep us Maybe infantile is too negative a word. It keeps us very childlike, I think, you know, and there's not there's nothing wrong with being childlike your whole life. As long mm-hmm. as you can pay the bills, you know. <laughs> is, it, is it hard to switch it off? The, the all the, the stories and creative from things you see? You know, it, what's weird is that if I'm not working on a story, I I miss it. It's almost like, you know. I learn a lot from watching dogs. You know, when a dog doesn't have a bone to chew on, Mm -hmm. you can tell they're just kind of like, where's the next bone, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm kind of like that with the stories. Like, you know, I'm, I'm really, I really crave the next story to roll around in my head. When you're, when you create a character, what starts first? Is it an idea of the characteristic of the person? Is it a look? Is it a name? What's, what do you usually start with? For for superheroes, it's often the hero that you start with. So, for instance, Daredevil, to me, when I realized that he was like, you know, a lapsed Catholic who wore a devil suit, mm-hmm. a lawyer, if he couldn't, you know, fix the problem with the legal system, he punched the problem away, had a, had a kind of history of falling for troubled women 
because when I came on the book, he had already had, there were already, I think the stories with Karen Berger, Karen, not Karen Berger, Karen, uh, as a, um, as a junkie, maybe, and Electra, of course, is an assassin. So out of knowing his history and his character, Johnny Ramita and, and Ralph Macchio and I, the th- you know, my our editor, the, usually the editor and the artist, you know, you you kind of just get in sync and decided to create a, a female who had was a villain and seduced the different sides of Matt. And so we created her for Daredevil, designed to mess with Daredevil's head. That's that was her whole reason for coming into being. Mm-hmm. And it worked, you know, and it was a lot of fun. It was a blast. And I think that it's similar with just with Storm. I recently with Storm, it was kind of about how she was feeling like she had to get if you're going to be the boss, you have to, because she's taking over the X-Men, you have to suddenly create distance with your personal relationships to a certain degree, and it was making her appear cold. So the villain came, the, the villain came as somebody that could be a, somebody who could twist what was going on in her mind at that point in her life. So again, came up with a villain that would work for that particular narrative storm seeming to be cold and aloof and, you know, um, and then for the seeds, it was, um, just things I'm upset. I mean, I'm Astra, I'm a journalist, you know, so a lot of the stuff, the newsroom stuff is out of my life. And, um, I have friends, you know, I'm, my grandfather was a farmer so the farmer is my grandfather and the complicated feelings that farmers can have mm-hmm. when they have to kill these animals that they've have some affection for. And, um, and then of course you work with the artists like David Aha has his own feelings about nature, about um, tech mm-hmm. and, you know, the aliens, uh, you, you know, I, I I loved when I, I sent him, he was like, well, what kind of aliens, you know? And I was like, I don't want them to be superior. I don't want them to be super evil or super kind. I want them to be like a bunch of guys that are calling themselves plumbers, but they're not really plumbers and they've come over to fix your sink and they make a mess. You know, I wanted them to be just like, you know anybody and right. and uh, and so he ran with that and designed them in this like super creepy but kind of exactly as i pictured them it was amazing it was just just i i pictured them as kind of like i don't know what do we do next drill a hole in her head you know like <laughs> it was just like this so we had a lot of fun with that and and then of course david came up with the color and the design and the nine panel page. And then I learned a lot from him because just watching how he, I usually do four panel pages so that the artist can, you know, combine panels and make a spread if they want or add panels. And David would turn every four panel page into a nine panel page. So it gave him a lot of freedom to be very musical with it. And to, you know, focus 
and highlight and you know so that was a lot of fun and yeah. then with captain with captain marvel again i didn't feel like i could do something um too too deeply character driven because that was for the next writer the real you know the real writer you know a series has a main writer and i'm just doing a bridge I didn't even know why it was just, I think the next writer needed needed time because when you're taking over a series, you really have to come up with some powerful new arcs. But when you're just doing a five issue thing, you know, I just, I took cues from my editor, Sarah. She just said, she just said, well, you know, she, she always thinks she's right. And she's a little bossy, you know? And I thought, mm, Okay. I'm going to have her meet some kids who push back, you know? So I had her meet these kids in an urban neighborhood and she got up there as on a speaking engagement as a maverick. And they were like, yeah, you're a maverick. Really? You know, so <laughs> dude, that was, so that was fun. But again, it's all from the main character. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my cue from my editor was that she has this arrogance and can be bossy. Therefore, then you create something that hits up against that. And with Captain Marvel, of course, it has to be a big space epic because right. that's what her book is. And I kept proposing villains and every villain I proposed, they were like, oh, no, you can't use that one. You can't use that one. That one's busy. And finally, I was like, let me just Google like Captain Marvel villains that no one cares about, you know? And there was a list of these characters. And, and there I was like, wait a minute, Nitro. His name is Nitro and he explodes. Like, that's a cool character. Why does no one care about Nitro? So, you know, I put Nitro in it. And then there's the symmetry because Nitro killed the original Captain Marvel. Mm. So there was symmetry in that. And since he would be considered an older character, even though in Marvel time, I think people age one year for every 10 years, you know, so he wouldn't be like 18 anymore. He'd be 20 something, but he feels older. And um, I had him being really frustrated with tech. Like he's got headaches. The guy that explodes has headaches and he keeps getting these robo doctors and they're putting them on hold and they don't realize that a robo doctor putting nitro on hold means the whole Marvel universe could explode. Right. You know, so that was really fun to do. <laughs> well, let's talk about villains. There's one you created. Um, it was one of the few times reading comics that, I felt really uneasy about a villain, and that was Rotgut um, for Daredevil. Uh, how did he come yeah. together? Because he was really a, a dark, dark character. Well, I think that it was, um, like I said earlier, when Ralph put put me on Daredevil, and, and I think what was happening was Frank was leaving Daredevil, and I think that, you know, Frank Miller's run was extraordinary, and mm -hmm. I was very new to comics. I had just gotten a job at comics. I didn't know much about comics. And so I, I don't think I was as intimidated by some of the, some people just understood that following Frank Miller was going to be you, you, no matter what you did, you were, it was going to be a drop. And so I think a lot of writers just didn't want that. And then 
Ralph, I guess, was sort of um, trying out a few writers. Like I think maybe Danny Fingeroth or someone else. There were like a, he gave fill-ins to like three different writers. None of us knew that we, that we were being considered for the book. I just thought it was a fill-in. So I did a story with um, Barry Windsor Smith and we had a blast working together. And, you know, Ralph said, I like what you did. So do you want the series? And I said, I'll try. And then it's like what I said that I, I didn't know Daredevil well enough yet to write Daredevil stories. So I started by writing villain stories. So Rot Gut was just, I mean, you live in New York City. You have no idea that we live on top of the most ancient, rotted mm-hmm. pipe system. I mean, when they're the my block in the in the city, they're like constantly jackhammering and they you you look down there and you're just like the, the rats everywhere, the pipes are all rusted and I mean, it's so, so I think it, uh, he came out of that. He came mm. out of like the sewers of Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then again, just, just not quite knowing what I wanted to do with Daredevil yet. So I think there was like some alligator guy. I think mm. I had an alligator come out of the sewer, you know, something. I mean, I think I did a, a series of kooky villains Mm -hmm. and then probably my very wise editor ralph macchio said you're ignoring the hero you know (laughs) (laughs) and i had to you know and that's when johnny and i came up with typhoid mary Mm -hmm. with the rise now of creator-owned books you know the kickstarters and stuff like that um and it's, it's something that you mentioned before that you don't have to do a superhero comic to do a comic book do you think that's sort of going to be the trend now going forward to people doing real life experience comic books or books that just tackle different issues other than the superhero genre? I mean, I think there's room for everybody. I think that the human there's so many human voices like um like we everybody has a voice. You know, mm-hmm. you have a story. I mean, I learned that a lot teaching film, teaching film in Haiti and I taught film in the Arctic Circle and to on uh, indigenous reservations and people who had never thought of themselves as storytellers, you find out everyone's got a story. You just have to pull it out of them. And if they have lived something interesting in their life and their childhood and their, where they live there, there's a story, you know, Mm -hmm. they have a story. So I like the idea of, of many, many, many stories, like getting more and more voices out there and, so I'm always going to love both superheroes and indie and, you know, and now this, you know, I mean, I am def- definitely a little bit worried for young writers. Like I wouldn't have wanted to start art, writers and artists. I would not have wanted to start in the comic book industry at the moment when art AI generated content is getting better and better. I mean, it's, it's a little bit like, a little scary, mm-hmm. you know, and if if it keeps getting better without without with and you know the the comics industry've never had a had a union, so 
the only reason the the writers union and the WGA got traction is because they've always had a union and they can all stand together. In comics, I think Neil Adams tried to start a union once. There were a couple times and the companies just say no. So, uh, and then the other thing is young voices. Like I've gotten to tell a lot of stories. Mm. I want to hear what young people are thinking. You know, so it's great that Marvel still hires us old timers to do stuff. But I'm always really happy that there are always new young voices coming into comics. Yeah. You you know, you had, like you said, a long run on Daredevil. It seems like the norm now in comics is a writer will have maybe a six issue run or do just one story arc and then bounce to maybe a, a different book. Yeah. If you were starting in the industry now, would you rather have the security of a long run on one book or would you rather jump to different books and try different things out? I mean, I liked I liked being on Daredevil for that long because I really got in his skin and I got to know him and I knew um you know, there there are like your first issues are not going to you're not really going to nail the character yet. Mm. Um you know, some people can. I remember when, uh, who was it? Tom King, one of the Toms. <laughs> Somebody who did Vision. Okay. Did a Vision Mini. And put put them as androids in suburbia. I mean, that was a great idea. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, so once in a while, somebody steps in and just nails it right away. But a lot of time you need to, feel the characters for a while and then i can see in daredevil i can see that we really hit it with with typhoid the typhoid mary stories and then the whole hell going to hell narrative and then a beer with the devil and then you know and then at some point i could feel it kind of fizzing out like you know i had peaked (laughs) and you don't want to stay on too long after you peak (laughs) So, um, yeah, and it's it's not easy to step in and just do five issues because it 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 is like, you know. Um, so I don't know. I think both are good, you know, mm-hmm. and and a lot of it has to do with something that's above your pay grade, like the X Men Legends. I did X Men Legends long shot, and then I did the Storm mini and. You know, I just read Louise Simonson's first issue of Jean Grey, and I love it. It's like she's she's like telescoping time. It's like from the past, but also the future. And I love a Jean Grey who makes you nervous. That's my favorite Jean Grey. So, like, you know, I'm loving it, but I'm of that time, you know. Um, And so it's kind of like... I think Marvel's experimenting. Is there a market for people that grew up on Chris's 80s X-Men for more stories in that time period? And, you know, Storm sold out and went into a second printing. So I guess there is an audience. But, you know, I think that it's just fun. They're just saying, well, let's try this and see what happens. There's one project that you worked on that you think doesn't get talked enough about 
what would it be? What would be one thing that you really put your heart into and that you doesn't get enough press that you think? I mean, I think that, I, you know, I, I can't think that far back, but mm-hmm. um, I, I think probably most recently, you know, Ruby Falls, which was a graphic novel with Karen Berger at Berger Books and Dark, Dark Horse. It was about three generations of women. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was female artist, female editor, female writer. And it was a gentle story, even though it was a noir story about a fallen woman and it had crime in it. And for some reason, it just didn't get the traction. It mm-hmm. didn't, you know, and... I was sad about that. So, yeah, I I think it's a lovely story. And I was a little bit sad that it didn't get any traction, you know, at all. You know, we got reviewed well, but then it vanished, you know, whereas like, you know, other stuff I've done just keeps coming back and back and back, Mm -hmm. you know. Like, I mean, I go to conventions and, you know, it's I'm always so happy when someone brings me a copy of Ruby Falls to sell. I was I'm like, you read it to, to sign it, you know, yeah. you read it. Wow. You know, so <laughs> that's always fun. <laughs> uh, what are some projects you're working on now that folks can look forward to? Um, I am right now talking to Marvel about what I'm going to do next, but I'm not sure what it's going to be yet. So uh you know, and on my on the side, I'm trying to write um, some other stuff just for myself because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so I don't really know yet. It's but that's the life of a freelancer. Mm-hmm. You really spend a, a, quite a lot of your time not knowing what's next. <laughs> well, as a fan, if you're like me, answers they're more organized about it, and they yeah. have you know. Next six months, I'm going to do that. And then next year, and then, you know, and I'm just, I get into a project and I don't even think about what's next until that project is out of my brain. So I've always, I've never been good with the, um, you know, taking, making sure I have the next gig. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any folks specifically you'd love to work with again or haven't worked with yet that you'd love to work with? Uh, I, you know, I loved working with, uh, Paula uh, Villanelli, who mm-hmm. was who did the Captain Marvel series, mm-hmm. um, he has this like be- he has this speed, and, and it's so his work is so kinetic, it's so lush. Mm-hmm. He can he can he draws so well, you know. I mean, there are artists that learned how to draw through comics. And you can tell that they're drawing in a, in a, you know, you can tell who they're emulating. And then there are other artists that are just, it's just, it's liquid out of their fingers. They're just great artists and he can draw anything, anything you throw at him, he can draw. So he was mostly known for Star Wars. Uh, He did a lot of Star Wars comics and, um, and I'm sure he's going to be, I mean, the Captain Marvel stuff he drew is so gorgeous. I'm sure he's going to be working forever now. So I loved working with him. I would love to work with him again. Love to work with Flavia again. Flavia Biondi. Try try and make something that sells this time. (laughs) (laughs) 
But you know, when something doesn't sell, it really doesn't matter. You know, like uh, I was just in Memphis and this, you know, woman came up with her daughters and her daughters had read it and that made the whole convention to me, you know? So I was, so, you know, even if, even if, even if like you go to a gig and you're supposed to get up on stage and play and there's only two people in the audience, you still play as well as you can play for the two people that have showed up, you know? <laughs> do you, do you realize, you know, the, the impact you had on fans with your writing and editing and all the projects you've worked on uh, when, when they come up to you? Is it, is it? I mean, I'm pretty, I was, I was definitely pretty oblivious to it all when I was writing the work, mm-hmm. but you know, again, I just did this great con in Memphis and people would come up to me with some particular story that had had such an impact. And sometimes I felt a little guilty, you know, like, you know, somebody who read the animal rights stories and became a vegan or, you know, that some story you did had a profound impact on someone or mm-hmm. the seeds. Like lately, I've had people come up with the seeds and say, I now have a thing where I put away my phone for a certain amount of hours a day. And so you realize that, you know, it happens all the time. It's just like, and sometimes it's a little scary. Sometimes it's somebody that was too scared by something like you were saying with, what was his name? Rotgut. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and certainly I have a lot of people that come up and say that they're young adolescent brains were twisted into knots by typhoid and i always feel i always feel really guilty about that one you know <laughs> but you know it, it made an impact on folks and it made an impact on comics in general so did something right i hope so <laughs> <laughs> and we are back yeah i i'm i'm so thrilled to have spoken to Anne. uh it's one of those videos i i, I watch a few times because there's so much great stuff. She has so many wonderful stories to tell and so much more stuff coming out. I mean, Storm out recently. I hope everyone picked that up too. Uh, thank you, Anne, so much for taking the time. We'd love to have you back. There's just there's so much more to cover with your career. Uh, so thank you again for being on the show. And another thank you to Mr. Ryan T. Murphy. Ryan is supporting us. Uh, he has a film out called Christmas at Wayne Manor. Check it out on YouTube. I think you're really going to like it, comic fans. Uh, Ryan, thank you again so much. If you guys are interested, let us know on uh, Facebook, Messenger us. Let us know how you can get involved. So, Ryan, again, thank you. Thank you guys for watching. Thank you guys for listening. And we'll see you on Friday. The Dollar Bin Bandits are Orrin Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all the socials, at Dollar Bin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram, at DB Bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollar Bin Banter group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website, dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com. Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing, T. 
T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos.